0: Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Hey, um, if this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I usually do a bulk of the preaching and get a chance to do such this morning. Uh, we start a new series this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to jump in. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn um, and meet me at Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand up and keep it raised really high, and one of the ushers will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep the one that we're handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, as you turn there, um, we normally teach through books of the Bible or larger sections of scripture in a book of the Bible. So we're not going to teach through all of the Gospel of Matthew, but we are going to look at chapter 5, 6, and 7, which has been titled the Sermon on the Mount. Um, That Sermon on the Mount is a a sermon of Jesus teaching over these three chapters. Um, It was titled the Sermon on the Mount actually um, by a man, um, an African theologian by the name of St. Augustine. Some of you guys may have heard of him. And um, I mean, it's amazing to me how how he was so brilliant to name it, the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus teaching a sermon on a mountain, and he named it the Sermon on the Mount. And, and it was like 300 years after Jesus taught it or something like that. It took that long for people to give it a good title. So anyway, so we're going to jump in there with, with that title. Now, I'm going to say this from the jump. There, over the next several months as we teach through this, we'll teach this all the way into the last week of November as we walk through this. It will be easily the most challenging series that we've had. Judges was difficult because we had to talk about people... I mean, it was hard. Um, and, and, and there's other series. Romans was hard because of how long it was. Um, this is mainly Jesus saying, This is what it looks like for you to follow me. And it ain't easy. So, so just from the jump, I'm let you know this has probably been the hardest thing for me to study and teach because usually I try to have an understanding of oh yeah at least I'm living this at least a little bit and this is when I'm looking at it going man I think we all need to look in the mirror and look at the beatitudes starting off in the sermon of the mount and go let's just start and be honest and going I don't know if I'm truly living this out. Right, And so it, it's, it's not like super fun sermon. It's going to be basically you walking away going, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and next week will be less people here. So we're going to figure that out together. So let's, 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 let's pray. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> let's, let's pray and um, let's ask for the Holy Spirit to bring us the conviction that we need for God himself to bring about the change in the life of our body. Father, we thank you so much. And uh, we thank you that you have given us Jesus. And your kingdom is here, not yet fully. God, help us to understand that. As we look over the next several months um, at this text and your sermon, Jesus, um, would you you show us, Lord, what you desire of us? And would you remind us of what you are doing in us? Show us the people who you are calling us to, to live out uh, your character, God. God, I pray as we gather this morning and as we gather tonight, that ultimately, Lord, that you would uh, convict those of us who know you and trust you and those of who have never met us to see the life that you actually call your people to live in in the kingdom. Help us to see this invitation not only in right relationship with you, but the beauty of living out that right relationship. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first week of college, um, there was a guy that I met, still friends of the day. His name was Connor. And Connor was just a good friend of mine. Uh, he was from Northern California and got a really chance to know him. One of the things I liked about Connor was how much he talked about his dad. And I wasn't around a lot of people that were saying a lot of good things about their dad. And Con- Connor, Connor's dad was a fireman. Um, Connor's dad had saved a bunch of people. Like, Connor's dad was doing all those things. At the point I'm thinking, he's lying. But... Loves his dad, right? And so there's a weekend in college that's usually known as family weekend or parents weekend, where parents come in town. Um, they take all your friends out to eat. It's amazing, um, and 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 then you get the chance to meet people's parents. And so Connor's like, "Hey, my mom and dad are going to be in town. I want you guys to meet up with us. We're going to go to the movie theater. And if you guys remember back on Mel Avenue, where it used to be the Harkins there, and there was Islands that was the restaurant that was there. Cheesy fries. Y'all ain't ready. And so, so. <laughs> So Connor was like, "Why don't we're going to invite you guys there?" And um, Connor was a biracial kid, half white, half black. Now that that matters to what I'm about to say. So when we show up, I see Connor, and I see Connor and his mom and dad. And I said, "Connor," and he goes, "Yeah, why don't you meet my dad?" I met his dad, and I goes, "Connor, your dad's white," and uh, and he's like, "Yeah, he's been that way my whole life." And it was just one of those things where I was so accustomed to seeing uh, a biracial couple, like me and my wife, a black guy and a white lady and so forth, that I didn't expect Connor's dad to be red. I mean, red hair, red beard, red mustache, the whole deal. Like, that's Connor's dad. This is the dad I've been. I was thinking something. To, I wasn't thinking that. Right? <laughs> right? And I get, like, that's not always the case. We got a few people. We got, we got some white guys who are married to some sisters. I'm, I see you. And so <laughs> that's not a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, the point, the, point, the point was, I didn't, I didn't expect that. Like, it, it was like, I didn't expect that. I'd heard about him, I had an idea, but my expectation was, 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 was completely different. Now, when Jesus came into this world, there was a context in which Jesus was speaking to. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew primarily is speaking to Jewish people. And this particular audience had an expectation of what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom. They, they, they were raised in what we know as the Old Testament. They memorized it. They knew it. They knew the words of wisdom. They knew the words of the wisdom literature. They knew the prophets. They knew the historical elements. And they knew that it called for a day in which God's kingdom would come, in which God himself would send a Messiah. And they had expectations building over centuries about what this, this king would look like and what he would do for them. But the expectations they had were massively different than that of the one who came into this world as God's son, Jesus Christ. I mean, they were expecting someone ultimately to free them from an oppression in a way by killing, and yet Jesus comes in a way where he dies. They were expecting Jesus come in to bring in an, a different way of power through, through strength and ultimately a strength through physicality. And Jesus says, no, if someone slaps you on one cheek, won't you give them the other cheek? That when Jesus begins to bring in his kingdom, it's a totally different type of kingdom than they can imagine. In fact, what we talked before when we went through the Gospel of Mark, it's an upside-down kingdom. I mean, it's completely different than the way the world works. And so when you see Jesus, in fact, before Matthew chapter 5, um, it says that Jesus is actually calling his disciples and he's establishing the kingdom and he's healing people and so forth, but it's massively different. Like when Jesus is given the task by the Father to go ahead and redeem the whole world, like a big idea and God says, go redeem the whole world and it's on you, pick who you want to pick. And Jesus first picking the draft, he picks a fisherman, right? And like fishermen in that day were like, fisherman and Ida. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like someone you would say, who am I going to start the world with? Who am I going to create? I'm going to redeem the whole world. First pick in the draft, fisherman. Next pick, fisherman. Next pick, fisherman, right? And at this point, you're going, he don't, he don't get it. He's not going to get it done this way. <laughs> My fantasy draft's better than that, right? And so, so Jesus, and, and, and everything becomes the opposite, right? He, he begins to show miracle after miracle to those who are not even expecting miracle. And then the Pharisees, the religious people, they come and, Jesus, show us a miracle. And he goes, sorry, no miracles today. He's always just completely evading their expectations. He says, you know what? You want to you um, gain your life? Like, you want to gain your life? Then here's what you need to do. You need to actually, actually lose your life. And if you want to lose your life, spend everything you have in this world trying to make a name and gain it. That the way up is actually the way down when it comes to the kingdom of God. And you begin, Jesus begins to express what that looks like for those of us who are in right relationship with him. That the Sermon on the Mount in itself is not, um, here's what you need to do to get into God's kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is, if you get the king and you're in relationship with the king, here's how it ought to live. Like how you ought to live. And so there's a few ways in which people have looked at the way to approach the Sermon on the Mount. One way is to say Jesus raises these high expectations on how we ought to live, and then ultimately so that we can realize that we can't drive us to despair, so we would say, Jesus, help us. Or um, the other side is Jesus didn't really mean for us to, like, do all these things. It was an idea. Um, I don't think it's either. I think Jesus really meant for us to do this. I don't think it was meant to drive us to despair. Um, It wasn't, this is not a set of things that you do that if you're meek and you're poor, all of a sudden you receive Jesus. This is Jesus teaching after he's already established what the kingdom was. And he's giving a picture of what the good life or the blessed life, which we'll get into, looks like and how we live it out. It is an invitation to be with him and to join in what he's doing in establishing his kingdom. And so for us to understand a little bit about the nature of the kingdom, which we'll be talking about over a few months, you've got to understand what theologians call the already and the not yet. And that is the kingdom of God is already here. That when Jesus entered in this world, he says the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's the first thing he says is ultimately turn from your way and trust in him. That's how we receive right relationship and is with God is trusting in his son Jesus. And he said, but the kingdom of God is not yet here fully. Meaning there's the reign of God that's here, the spirit of God is here, it's in God's people, and it begins to show forth its work through the proclamation of the gospel. But he said it's not yet fully because there's still brokenness and injustice and so forth. And so we live in the middle of that tension. And so the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount is, as a follower of Christ, how to begin to practice what it looks like to fully live into the reign of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gives us these, these um, starts off first with the Beatitudes, which like I said, these are some very, um, not just hard, but convicting teachers of Jesus. Because if you are a follower of God and you were honestly looking at this as a mirror, you're going, um, I need to repent and believe. And so that's what we're going to look at today because the expectations that Jesus has for us is a countercultural life than the life that we would normally have. So let's go ahead and, um, and look at the word together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain... And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse, verse 4, or verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So here's what's happening. Jesus goes to this mountain. He sits down, which was very common in that day, to sit down and teach. Um, and then there's this disciples, those who he's called to follow him. And there's plenty of other people around. And, and mind you, Jesus had just healed blind people. He just cast out demons. That people are intrigued because they believe he may be the Messiah. And so these people who are following him thinking, oh, this must be the life. And then, and then just before that, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And so he understands um, our temptations. He's acquainted with it. There's a little bit of empathy that's there. And so he sits down and begins to say, wait, you think the world is supposed to be lived this way, but actually let me tell you what it's, how it's supposed to be lived. So he starts off by saying blessed, which is where we get the word beatitude. And blessed in itself is a hard translation because sometimes it translates happy, but that's hard for us because we think happy is a temporal sense or a circumstance. When What he's saying here, when he says blessed, it means whole. Uh, It means whole and delight and joy, primarily not in the circumstance that you find yourself in, but in the relationship you find yourself in, namely in relationship with God. It means that the one, the man, the woman, the child that is blessed is blessed because they are accepted by God. And the way we are accepted by God is not by living out the Beatitudes or anything else we see in the Sermon on the Mount. The way we are accepted by God is by accepting his acceptance of us. It's understanding first and foremost, God is the one who wants to dwell with us. The reason why He's establishing His kingdom here on earth is because He desires to be with us. He's the one who's pursuing us, He's the one who is after us. We enter into that covenantal relationship by accepting that He wants to be with us, and there's nothing we can do to have Him love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make Him love us less. And He says, That is the truly blessed life. And He says, So, so let's start here first. He goes, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That would have been the last thing that the original audience would have been able to, to want Jesus to say. Because there became a thought that um, in, in Jewish tradition here, as they begin to read the scriptures, you read about in the Old Testament that there's blessings and there's curses. There's blessings when you did the things for the Lord, and there's curses when you, when you sinned against them. That, that outside of that, they begin to build a theology that if you found yourself in a position where you were poor, that that meant you were in sin. And and if you've read through the Gospels, you've heard of the account where there's a man who um, ultimately has um, a disability. And they go, "Who sinned that that may happen? Was that his mom or was his dad? Was it him? Meaning they're assuming like in order for him to be that way, someone had to sin. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. It's ultimately that he may show off his glory and that we may praise him. So when he starts off, he's going, the way that this kingdom works is different. He goes, actually, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And it's hard for us to be able to relate to it because we don't really know what it's like to be poor. Some of us do, but many of us don't know what it's like to be poor. That we knew were we know, this morning we woke up, we knew where we can get food. We know where we can get food afterwards. We, we were able uh, to, to be able to put on clothes. Thank you. We were we were we were, we were able to we we have shelter that many of us have a place to go that we don't really understand what it means day after day to strive and to, to know where our meal is gonna come on, where we're gonna find water and where we're gonna find shelter. That every single day there's a dependence upon somebody or someone else to be able to meet our needs. And Jesus says, spiritually speaking, those are the people who were blessed, who wake up every day realizing and trusting and acting as if they need Jesus. Right? Not that, like, they met him at a summer camp years ago. Every single day they need Jesus. Not like I, did, I used to not know Jesus, but now I got a script book and I'm learning about him. I'm good. Right? Like, I need Jesus today. That there is nothing that I bring to the spiritual conversation about my relationship with God. Everything that I've received, I received by grace in which God has extended by his favor and love for me. That I am spiritually poor that I am destitute, that I am dispossessed. I do not have a lot or a stake or a home in God if it's up to me, but I have it fully when it's up to him. The thing about it is um, you only are hungry, or excuse me, you only become poor and you know your, your poverty when there's a sense of hunger there. But if we're honest, we're too full of ourselves to really need God. But we are. We are very self-sufficient. We can do things on our own. Like, we, we, we don't, we don't we really rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't know if this is something that we naturally do is going, we're poor in spirit. We may sing songs about it, but when's the last time you prayed and said, Lord, keep me poor in spirit that I may also always rely upon you? Um, Jesus says, that's actually the blessed life. That's the blessed life. Well, he doesn't stop there. In fact, it just gets worse, guys. Um, <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Not blessed are those who overeat. Not blessed are those who drink. Not blessed are those who find a spouse. Not blessed are those who kids who grow up loving Jesus. It's um, beautiful and it's good and it's healthy and biblical. As all those things are, it says, it says, blessed are those who mourn, mourn, lament. And what he's talking about is when you understand your spiritual poverty, that you mourn over your own brokenness, that you mourn over sin, that like we sin. And at best, we want to confess it really quick, receive God's grace, and move on, or maybe fix it. But we're not sitting there mourning over it. And mourning is not beating yourself up over it either. It's understanding your brokenness and owning it. Right? Like there are certain things that you do that you did yesterday that you're going to fail again next week, and you're going to fail again the next week, and that you begin to mourn over your own brokenness. So I was thinking about this this week. Mainly because me and my wife had to sit down and, and have a conversation. <laughs> and so, and, and, uh, you know, I don't know about your marriage. I can only speak my my marriage. I know my marriage is probably better than most of you guys. And <laughs> the reality of it is you guys know that that's just not true. And so we're sitting down and I'm going, okay, Holly, how can I love you more? And she gives me, like, <laughs> she gives me the things that she's been saying for the last nine years. And I would love to say I've mastered that, but it's like I was like, really? I still can't get the Gatorades out of the car, you know? <laughs> like, my wife is really simple. Like, she's not like, buy me something, go bring the moon and back. She knows that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> it's very, very practical. She wants me to love her through tasks. Like, here's a novel thought. Finish your, your meal. Take your own plate put it in the sink, rinse it. There's this really cool gift that we have called the dishwasher. <laughs> Open that mug, put it in there, and close it. I love you, right? <laughs> and, and it sounds really simple, but, like, I would rather, like, give her hugs and kisses. And she goes, I love all that, but, like, help me out, right? And, and, and it's, it's all, it's, you know, it's kind of funny now, but, like, it broke me. It broke me because I'm like, we've been married for nine years, and it's the same thing. That we should be broken over our sin. And not beating yourself up with broken like, Lord, I, I really need you in that area. I need, I need, I need Jesus' Holy Spirit to help me pick up Gatorade bottles out of the car in order to show my wife that I love her. Not just individual mourning, but mourning over the things that we read about. The things that we see in the news, the things that happen in our neighborhood, that we mourn over those things, that we, we lament over those things, that it's not just something we hear and then we move on to the next. If we're, We just become so numb to things. And Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are those who mourn. Your comfort will come through you being able to engage in the things around you. The evil and ultimately sinfulness that comes out of you and also the evil and sinfulness in the world around us. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. And, like, when do do we, like, schedule times in our day to set aside to basically read the news and read what's happening in our own country, in our own world, and just say, Lord, have mercy. He's saying that's actually the blessed life. We are uncomfortable with that. Change the channel. This is making me sad. We are uncomfortable with that. And Jesus said, part of being a part of the kingdom is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And when you're uncomfortable, that's actually how you find your comfort. And then this is not like practical, and it's not logical. It's just godly. Verse 4. Blessed. No, I'm not going to make you go through that again. Um, Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek to me is great. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, and today can you help me be meek? Right? Anybody prayed that? Yeah, exactly. Right? Right? Meek sometimes gets translated weak, we think it's weak. It's not weak, it's, it, it's, it's not weak at all. It's actually really a position of strength and a position of have and, and not a position of have not. And so meek in itself could be gentle or humble, but when you think about meek, think about it in the nature of power and power dynamics. And that's hard for us. Um, one, it's hard because when we think about power, we think about those who abuse power. And who use power in such a way to further their own good, uh, their own agenda, and so forth. And, and so we go, power is bad. And so we, we oscillate over here and go, power is a bad thing. When really power is a thing. And it's something that you can use ultimately to glorify God or ultimately ultimately to try to advance your own agenda, which is not good. Um, meek is being able to have privilege or affluence or power or whatever word you're comfortable with using. And using that to advance somebody else's agenda. So let me give you an example of that. So when I was in school, we got an opportunity. I was pursuing a degree in in, in urban ministry. And we were learning about some homeless ministry, in particular in San Antonio. And they were talking about how there was this divide with those who were called into an urban poor ministry and then those who were doing vocational things. Like there was this this divide because there would be rich people and then those who were kind of like pouring themselves out for the marginalized. And this guy was talking about ultimately how they needed to come together. And he shared his story of how he started this ministry in San Antonio for um, homeless men and women. And he just was teaching Bible studies, Bible studies. And people would give to it. They'd give money to it and so forth. And he was saving his money because he wanted to have a facility in which he could have uh, shelter and so forth and transitional um, houses for uh, a particular group of people in, in San Antonio. Well, this very successful um, man in banking began to come to this Bible studies because he said, I've never heard anybody teach the Bible better than this guy. And so I would sit in and I loved listening and listening because after two years of being there, I finally said, hey, is there anything I can do to help? Like, what's your vision? What's your plan for this? And so the man told him, like, you know, I want a bigger facility instead of this little house. And I want to be able to do this. He goes, how much money do you have? He goes, well, over 20 years, I've, I've saved up about a million dollars. He said a million dollars over 20 years. He goes, well, what bank do you have it in And told him the bank. And it just so happened that, this guy was one of the head guys in this bank. And I don't really know how banking works, but the way he described the story is that he, this man that had the money should have been told what to do with this money, that if he was going to leave it in there for so many years that he would have more money. I don't know how to explain that. Um, <laughs> but it sounds really baller. <laughs> But given the way he dressed and the way he carried himself, no one in the bank actually advised him to do that. And so the guy who is kind of like undercover boss type stuff going on, he takes his buddy, now goes to the bank and, and, and you know, flashes his card like, I'm the you-know-what. And then, and, then, and then he says, why didn't this man, why wasn't he given the opportunity to essentially not just have a million but probably three or four million now? And, um. The bank ended up giving him the money that he would have had and accured over those three years, three or four years. What what you had in that situation was somebody who used their power, their privilege, their affluence, whatever you want to call it, in such a way to advance another person's agenda and not their own. Someone who used their strength and was willing to risk themselves for the sake of advancing somebody else's agenda. So when Jesus says... (laughs) blessed are the meek for they inherit the earth because that's the way the world ought to be. And when the kingdom is fully realized, that's the way the world will be because there was one who was truly meek and his own strength gave himself and ordered the advanced agenda of those of us who could not um, on our own behalf. And that was Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus begins to say is inviting us into his life. And he's saying, this is the truly blessed life. It's not looking out for number one. It's looking out for everybody else. It's not looking out just for the safety of your own kids. It's looking out for the safety of kids. It's not just caring about your marriage. It's about marriage. And saying, ultimately, taking your eyes off yourself and putting them on the other. Amen? We're not done, guys. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now these two go hand in hand. So when it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst, you see that picture there. You know what it's like to be hungry. You know what it's like to be thirsty. You've had those pangs before. It goes um, to long for righteousness. And I think when we look at righteousness, um, we, we think of moral living. We think of right living, and we should. We think of obedience, and we should. We don't always think of justice when it's the same word. But one of the more helpful books that I've read in the last three years on this was a book called Pursuing Justice um, by a guy by the name of Ken Weitzma incredible book at talking through when you see this, this word mentioned over 80 plus times in the New Testament alone, how God is calling us to join in in what he's doing in righteousness slash justice. Um, and, and again, just a side note, that guy who wrote that book, um, we were able to build a relationship with him, and we called him and said, hey, why don't you come preach at our church? And he said, sure. So he's coming in from Oregon next week, and he's going to teach on Salt and Light, so he'll be here. So he'll do way better than me. Um, but back to the Bible. It's not better than the Bible, guys. And so he's, he, one of the things that he explains is you have to look at righteousness at, at two sides of the same coin. There is a side of right living and morality, but there's a side of justice, that you thirst for things to be the way they ought to be, right? Truth is the way that things should be. Justice is the way that things ought to be. So when you look in your neighborhood and you go, it ought not to be that way. And you think of any way in which you can join in, any way in which you could participate. So let, let me give you this, this example that happened in my neighborhood in one, one day. And so I, my neighbor comes over. My, <laughs> my next-door neighbor's a trip, and I love this dude. So he comes over, and he goes, knocks on the door, and he goes, hey, how you doing? We're talking. We're talking ASU football. We always talk about that. And then he goes, hey, man, I got bad news. And I said, he goes, oh, my cat died. And you guys know how much I love cats and animals. And so I was like, oh, man, that, that uh, uh, sorry to hear that. Uh, and, it, and he goes, yeah, no big deal. You know, I knew it was coming. And, and so we're just talking about his, about his cat. And he goes, I asked you a question. Do you, would, you, <laughs> would you mind doing a memorial service for my cat? <laughs> I know you're a pastor. And I was just like, sure, Tom. Uh, I've never done one before, but we're going to figure this out. Uh, and so we got a date set aside for this week for us to do that. I can't wait to tell you guys how that goes. Um, and then as we're talking, as we're talking there, we're talking. Um, just a week before he had told me that one of our other neighbors uh, was uh, was was dying and was a part, it was a part of his can't cancer treatment that he was done. He was going to take no more chemo and the cancer had spread to a point. And, uh, and I said, man, I see him walking up and down the street. I had no idea. And, um, and so he's telling me this, and it, and it is, it's sad. And then he pulls up, his son pulls him up, and his son's older and he's an older man and he's getting him out of the car and I can see his ho- house and and we're looking at him and, and he and um and he fell, and so we ran over there. And this is not oh I, I was a hero. No, I was in the no not at all. And so we run there and we help him and we we get him inside the house and everything. And and um and all I could do in that moment was think about uh, how I live across the street and three houses over for you. You're dying and I don't even know. Um, you need help. Like you can't go to the bathroom. I think it's probably my responsibility to help you at some level. And then you go to the scripture and you go, I don't think, I know. That when we thirst for justice and righteousness, it's reflecting the character of God. Hear me, when you begin to read this Bible, and especially when you begin to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the life of our Savior, he was always present in moments like that not just at social gatherings where there was good beer and good laughter, but he was present in people's pain, that he was constantly looking to seek the things that were broken and bring healing, that that he was present when there was was people mourning, that there was a a thirsting and a hunger for justice, and so he leaves the comfort of heaven in order to bring that sort of life here. And then Jesus tethers this as saying, This is what the kingdom is like, is is pouring yourselves out for others. And the second one is very similar in verse 7 where he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And sometimes we get mercy and grace confused. Grace is God's unmerited favor, a gift towards us we do not deserve. And it usually is talked about in the forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. Mercy, similar though, is God having compassion on us. The, 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 one, of the, one, of the, one of the best stories that you want to see about how to show compassion is the story that we read about in the Gospel of Luke of the Good Samaritan. man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, you know, how do I love my neighbor? What do I need to do? And then Jesus looks at him and goes, let me tell you a story. And Jesus breaks out into this story. He goes, there's two men. They're pastors of churches out here. Um, one, And then there was this man who was beat up on the road. He was traveling down Van Buren late one night. And, and some, some people got after him, right? And he goes, the pastor shows up, and the pastor was like, listen, like, I, I got to go. I got to get to this service. We got a 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, a 5 o'clock. I, I got to go. We got first Wednesdays coming up. I got to get, right? And he says, another guy shows up, and he says he's, he can't be there, so he's got to go. And this guy's just sitting there hurting. And then an the unlikely person shows up, a foreigner, Right? Someone who's not supposed to be there shows up in that particular neighborhood and says, I'm going to help this man. He checks into the Marriott. He leaves his card there. He goes, make sure this man gets food. Make sure he eats. Um, you know what? Even let him get a free movie. If It's an appropriate movie. He can get a movie in the room. He can all of that. And whatever debt that he incurs, I, I, I got this. I'm going to take care of him. And, and then Jesus looks at the man and goes, which one was his neighbor? Which one showed him mercy? Right? And he shows that's what mercy is it's being with people who are hurting. It's being with people who are suffering. We are not good at that. If someone broke out crying right now, the first thing we're going to tell them is, you're okay. Don't cry. Why not? And I'm not okay. Right? It's because we, we don't know how to sit with people. We don't know how to show that sort of compassion And mercy, and Jesus is saying the blessed life is thirsting after that sort of righteousness and justice. The blessed life is actually pouring yourselves out for the suffering of others. And, yes, it does have social components. And I have to say that because I get in a church like ours, really good, solid Bible people are going to go, Ricardo, wait, wait, the mission of the church is not social justice. The mission of the church is discipleship. You know what I'm going to tell you? I agree with you. I believe that the primary mission of the church is to make disciples disciples. In the name of Jesus. However, there's no way you can be a disciple of Jesus without loving your neighbor. And if my neighbor doesn't have water, and I do, I think I'm responsible to give him water. If my neighbor's kids don't have access to the things that my kids have access to, and it's in my power and ability to be able to provide for that, I think I should work for that. Um, Jesus, when he begins to show examples of loving your neighbor, they're always social. He tells this man, um, do you see this story that he shared with Good Samaritan? Not once did he give him a little booklet and say, come to my church on Sunday and I'll give you the rest. of.'" No, here's my credit card, just, just, just go. Um, that is when he says that's the blessed life. That's the kingdom life. It's pouring ourselves out for the marginalized and anybody who is suffering and hurting. Amen. And there's people in this room that are in that. This this gal came up to me afterwards, the last service, and um, and I'm gonna be honest with you guys right now. Not that I've been lying the whole time up into this moment, but <laughs> <laughs> the bigger the church gets, the harder the church gets for me because I don't know you, and I wish I knew you. I wish I really, I wish I knew. You. This girl came up to me and she's telling me this whole this whole story about this, the cancer she's in. She's young. She's young. She's young. And, she, and she's saying, you know, by God's grace, by September 23rd, I will be cancer-free. And she goes, but here's some other good news. So the first time in over a year, my doctor's allowing me to leave the state. So I'm going to get a chance to go to the water and see the ocean. Um, and, and my birthday is actually two days after the day that I'm supposed to be cancer-free. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, I didn't even know that. And I've seen her come here week after week after week. And I'm just like, how do we enter into that? And so it, it's actually trying to live out what Jesus says. We would rather have a good time instead of having a hard time. And you don't have to, you have to manufacture a good time. You don't have to manufacture a hard time. It's just life. G, G, Jesus, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, those who show compassion, for they will be shown compassion. And all he's doing is saying, just do for, you, just do for people what I did for you. I left my comfort in order to sacrifice myself for you. And if you believe in that and you trust in that, go do likewise. And go do likewise as many people as you can, of as many neighbors as you can. Well, let's finish this up. Jesus says in verse 8 and 9 here, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When he says blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about in, in, like, like internal. That your heart is seeking God. And the reason why he says for those they will, they will see God is because that's who they desire to be like. This is a p- posture of holiness. That you desire to imitate God. Jesus is not saying be Jesus. But he's saying, man, imitate him. Fall in love with him. Adore him for who he is and who God is. That's the right relationship. And when you begin to look like him and imitate him, the way to imitate him best is to be a peacemaker. And when he talks about peacemaker, he's literally talking about reconciliation. Here's a helpful verse that we see that I think is a reference verse for here in Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 17. It says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace The peacemaker, he seeks it. And he's talking about the racial and ethnic divide that was present in the world and in the church, that is still present in the world and the church. And he's saying that ultimately, through the cross, Jesus provides the means of reconciliation, of racial reconciliation, of relational reconciliation, of community reconciliation, and he's saying those who follow Christ and ultimately follow him through the cross and live a life that is shaped by the cross will seek reconciliation and not try to throw lobs at the other side, but ultimately saying, how in Christ are we made one? All carrying and embodying the image of God. He says, blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, ultimately because we were acting like the son of God, who gave his life in order that we may be one, racially, ethnically, and so forth, that we are one in the work of Christ. Amen? Our country could use that. Like bad. Like bad. To say, is there a way for people to be one? Yeah. It's through the cross. And it actually is the blessed life. We just got to live it. God's already provided the means for us. We have to believe it and trust it and follow in it. And when you begin to live for this Jesus, you begin to have the pure heart, you begin to look, look be the poor in spirit, you begin to thirst and hunger for righteousness, What he says is this, be ready because persecution will happen. Persecution will happen relationally. Persecution could happen vocationally. Persecution can happen and your belief in the Bible and what God teaches about himself and the people who you love will tell you, there's no way you can love me if you don't fully affirm what I'm thinking or believing or doing in this moment. Persecution will happen in multiple different ways. And Jesus says that your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. He says, and so they persecuted the prophets. I dare you to go back and read the prophets. In fact, you're going to because we're reading the Bible through a whole (laughs) year. The prophets' lives were horrible. Horrible. But the reward is great in heaven. Because you know what the reward is? It's Jesus. Sometimes we go, oh, I thought there was something else. (laughs) No, there's nothing else. And that should be the reward. Is to be able to see him and and reign with him. Listen. Listen. We follow the biggest reject to ever live in the world, and yet we are killing ourselves to try to find comfort and fit into this world. That Jesus calls us to be called out into this world, to be light in this world, to be salt in this world, and to live out his agenda. And yet we're trying, we're trying so hard to find safety. We're trying to protect our kids from certain things and certain diseases and certain food colorings. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Jesus gave himself on the cross, and he says, follow me. And don't follow me and be safe about it. Follow me and be radical about it. And I'm just being honest with you. I don't know if we or myself are really trying to live that life. If the air conditioning went off right now and it got really hot in here, some of you would never come back to this church again. (laughs) Right? If somehow the seats were very uncomfortable, if communication wasn't the best, you probably wouldn't come back because you'd find the next comfortable thing the children's ministry didn't provide the funnest Disneyland-like experience, <laughs> which it won't, <laughs> we'll find something else. All we need is a broken body and shed blood, and we should be okay. Amen? The life that Jesus is calling us to is his life. And the life that he's calling us to is a life that ultimately follows him and embodies his values, and, the, and we can only do that in his strength. So I'm going to close with that. I promise you it's going to get harder and harder and harder, um, and it's supposed to, and hopefully uh, we will begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's a good thing. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we just confess our need of you, that though we are spiritually destitute, we don't always know it. We're full of ourselves and the things of this world that we don't really understand what it's like to have an appetite for you. So we thank you for the conviction of your word, and we thank you for the conviction of your spirit. And we thank you that you are not just calling us to a standard, but you're calling us to yourself. And you desire to be with us, and this is a life that you have for us. This is the life that you provided for us. Help us to see this is a truly happy, blessed life. Help us to long to imitate you. Help us to pour ourselves out for the many that you are bringing from other countries into this country. Help us to pour ourselves out for our literal neighbors, Lord, that are literally dying. Lord, help us to step in the gap ultimately, Lord, and bring reconciliation even at our own cost. Help us to love those in this room, whether they believe in Jesus or not. God, I pray as there is division in our country that there will be oneness in your church. And not just in redemption, but throughout the churches in this city, throughout the churches in this state, throughout the churches in the country and your church in the world. Jesus, we know that the church will ultimately not fail because you gave yourself for her. And it is your bride and you love her. And we thank you, Lord, that we can love you because you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen.